Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 112. We're talking about type 2 diabetes. Now, when Austin and I originally recorded this, it got pretty long. It's like 90 minutes of jam-packed information, and it's good information that we feel like needs to be absorbed in its entirety, so we split this up into two episodes. Part one, we're going to talk about what is diabetes, what are the risk factors, long-term complications, and medications, kind of what you need to know as a strength coach or healthcare professional dealing with folks trying to make lifestyle changes to either reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes or reduce the risk of developing complications from type 2 diabetes or just treating type 2 diabetes in general. Part two, we're going to talk all about training, nutrition, and a few other nuances that uh, strength training professionals or individuals who are counseling others on exercise need to know about type 2 diabetes and training and some nutrition considerations. But before we jump into part one, hey, happy Labor Day. You thought that we were going to take the week off, didn't you? But we didn't. So I wanted to wish all of you guys happy Labor Day weekend. It's Monday. You can join us here every Monday on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. And hey, just FYI, today is the last day of our Labor Day sale. Go over to the barbellmedicine.com website where you can get big discounts on all of our stuff. So head over to the website, check that out if you're so inclined, and let's get into this week's podcast. Austin, what's uh, what's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing okay. Silky smooth voice coming to you from uh, Louisiana at the moment. <laughs> okay, you are in Louisiana. Can't confirm. That's yeah. uh, you guys. You guys have power. The yes. hey, no no problems with the hurricane. Yeah, so I finished up in the hospital last week, and then once power came back after the hurricane hit out here, and my wife said things were slowly getting back to normal, I, I made the trek out here. So that's good. We're doing okay. Cool. And we're gonna we get to reconvene next uh, week. It's been a minute. I haven't seen yeah. you in a while. Yeah. Oh, hallmark moment. Okay. Well, look, we have a lot of information to cover, so let's just get into this thing. Um, so the first part of this is like, what is diabetes? Um, what I'm gonna do is leave the like endocrine review overview to you because I think you uh, address that with your patients frequently. But uh, just to kind of like give people a little background, like what is diabetes? Like where did this term even come from? It's Greek. It actually means to siphon. And mellitus is actually Latin, which means sweet, sweet siphon. I don't know. Uh, in any case, the term diabetes mellitus, uh, diabetes mellitus is uh, first coined in the first century AD by a Greek physician, Aretius of Cappadocia. And effectively, diabetes mellitus refers to a group of common metabolic disorders that share the presence of high blood sugar that can lead to complications in other organs, such as the eyes, you get diabetic retinopathy, uh, heart problems, increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, pancreas, kidneys, blood vessels, nerves, etc. In fact, you know, it's, it'd be rare to find an organ organ system that isn't affected by diabetes. It's a systemic sort of disease. And some, this imposes a large burden on the individual with diabetes and the healthcare system. We're going to talk all about the epidemiology here in a little bit, but Austin, you see a lot of it because it's just so common, but 
do you often find yourself explaining to folks like what diabetes is? And if so, like, how do you, how do you explain that to them? Oh yeah, definitely. So we get both new diagnoses of diabetes when patients come in, in, you know, in diabetic ketoacidosis or they have, or they have some other uh, complication that leads them to come in when they didn't already have the diagnosis. Or we also have patients frequently who have diabetes and come in. And when I ask them about their medications or what they do, for example, to, to treat it, they might answer in a way that suggests to me that they don't necessarily know kind of uh, what it is. Um, and so that'll lead us down the path of uh, discussing it a bit more. Um, so, so most people have a familiarity with the idea of what a hormone is. If, if not, hormones are basically little signaling chemicals in our body. And there are a bunch of different organs that release these signaling chemicals and they can go and travel throughout the body and have effects on other organs. So the organs can kind of talk to one another and affect each other's function through the release of these little chemical signals. And so one example of these is this hormone called insulin. And that comes out of an organ called the pancreas that sits in your, in your belly, just underneath your, underneath your stomach. Um, and that is one of many hormones that's involved in regulating the amount of sugar that is kind of swimming around in your blood because your tissues, your muscles, your, all your cells need to use sugar to create energy, to do the things that you want to try to do, to get up, to move around, to, to think, to, to just live. Um, and so insulin is kind of the, one of the chemicals that our cells use to, uh, uh, to assist in taking up blood sugar. And so when there's something wrong with that process, whether you're not releasing and you're not making or enough insulin, not releasing enough insulin, or the insulin is not working on the cells that it's supposed to work on, that can lead to problems with uh, your, your uh, body being able to use blood sugar. And so that blood sugar tends to kind of accumulate in the bloodstream. It can get really high. And that can lead to a variety of complications that are, or, or kind of problems as a result of this blood sugar. If it gets really, really high, then that can cause problems kind of uh, acutely or suddenly. Uh, and, and these are kind of short-term symptoms that people can develop from really high blood sugars. However, if they're elevated to a more moderate range, not to a level that it's going to cause immediate symptoms right away, it can lead to complications and, or, or other problems in other organs over the course of years to decades. And that's, that's a lot of the complications that I see on a daily basis um, in, in the hospital, patients coming in for you know, uh, issues related to complications from diabetes and their other kind of medical conditions. So all in all, you know, this, this endocrine system that we talk about has to do with all these organs talking to one another through these chemical signals. And diabetes is a situation where one of these particular chemical signals called insulin is uh, the, the process that it's involved in is not necessarily working correctly, leading to blood sugars being excessively high. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, what you mentioned there, if when people don't have like this, you know, really low blood sugar or very, very high blood sugar or other complications, other like acute short-term problems happen and kind of like makes declares itself as, as an issue, you, you might not know that your blood sugar is high because you just, you don't feel bad. In any case, we're going to talk about like the definitions of all of that and some complications, et cetera. Uh, but diabetes comes in a bunch of different flavors. Um, as you referred to earlier, there's typically something wrong with insulin. So either the absolute amount of insulin is not enough, uh, for example, or the activity of insulin is not sufficient to you know help regulate blood sugar, or the insulin receptor is defective or somehow not working. Uh, and ultimately, any number or combination of these things results in an elevated blood sugar. And so the specific type 
of diabetes depends on the cause and or contributing factors. In general, there are two major types. Type 1, which is previously called insulin-dependent diabetes or juvenile-onset diabetes. Uh, this accounts for about 5 to 10% of all cases of diabetes, and it's usually due to like an autoimmune disease or idiopathic destruction of the beta cells in the pancreas. So the pancreas, again, is that organ in the abdomen that releases uh, insulin and a bunch of other you know important factors. But uh, in any case, type 1 diabetes effectively result, you have less beta cell function or no beta cell function. And so since you're not producing insulin, you generally have to take insulin. And uh, it was previously called, again, juvenile onset diabetes. I saw this all the time on pediatrics. Kids would come in diabetic ketoacidosis. And yeah, saw that quite a bit. You, you see it less in adults, but you know, it happens. Yeah. And there are other there are other types. Uh, type 2, again, is the second major uh, type. And this is like 90 to 95% of all types of diabetes, previously called non-insulin dependent diabetes, because you still produce insulin, just either not enough or the activity of the insulin you're producing is not uh, sufficient to control your blood sugar. Um, so that's in contrast to the absolute insulin deficiency that you see um, in type 1 diabetes. In any case, you also tend to see this progressive decline in beta cell function over time rather than like, you know, you have this autoimmune disease or this infection or some other idiopathic, which, uh, you know, basically we don't know what caused the destruction of, of beta cells in type 1. Um, rather than type 2, you see this progressive decline in beta cell function over time. And again, there's many other types. We could really, the laundry list stuff and, you know, People have accused us in the past of just wanting to sound smart, but since we, we're not actually trying to do that, we're going to leave that list out of here. Um, <laughs> all of our our references in the description below, like you can go wild on this stuff. Talk about the different, you know, modis, genetic, uh, you know, variations that, that cause different insulin uh, or uh, different types of diabetes. But we're going to focus on type two diabetes in this podcast because again, it's ninety to ninety five percent of all t- uh, diabetes, and I feel like this is since it is so common, uh, our you know the coaches and people and trainers and uh, other healthcare professionals that listen to this, they're going to take a lot away, hopefully take a lot away from this podcast. So um, epidemiology wise, again, so it's 90 to 95% of all cases are type 2 diabetes. This is the seventh leading cause of mortality globally and affects nearly one in 11 worldwide. But there are substantial racial and ethnic differences. Um, and, and, you know, so in general, in the United States, for example, um, African-American, Native American, Pacific Islander, Asian-American all tend to have higher prevalences of type 2 diabetes than uh, Caucasians. That's just in, in the United States. And then this kind of changes based on geography oh, worldwide. But again, very, very large problem when we look at like global health, uh, which can also unfortunately lead to a lot of complications that Austin alluded to earlier. Austin, when we're talking about diabetic complications, why does it happen and what do we normally see? Yeah. So, so diabetic complications are super important uh, uh, to know about because like you said, when people's blood sugars are either normal or mildly or moderately elevated, uh, most people don't really have very many symptoms uh, from that situation. It's only at the extremes that people tend to really develop symptoms. And so when blood sugars are extremely high, I do see this, you know, somewhat frequently where patients will come in and they'll actually have symptoms from sudden onset, you know, very high blood sugars that could be in the you know, 500, 600, 700, upwards of a uh, thousand. I had one recently that was uh, 1100 or something like that. Um, and those are extremely, extremely high blood sugars that they have a bunch of consequences in the body. So it can change, for example, how, how you know, the thickness of the, the blood and how it flows. It can alter where your body fluids kind of go. It can suck some uh, water out of your cells, for example. This can result in a whole bunch of symptoms, uh, including most commonly will be dry mouth, blurred vision, uh, uh, severe dehydration. It can actually 
actually affect neurological function and, you know, the effect, the function of your brain, for example. And in, in very extreme cases, it can lead to coma um, and, and some other complications. And, and those are really, you know, uh, uh, not the, the primary area of concern because it's not quite as common as the mild to moderate elevations in blood sugars that don't tend to generate tons of symptoms um, uh, for patients that they don't necessarily even know about. But, you know, sudden, really, really high blood sugars can certainly cause symptoms in the short term. As far as the longer term stuff, uh, this is, again, stuff that can develop over the course of years to, to decades, most commonly. Um, this is where the mild to moderate increases in blood sugar over time can affect the nervous system. So this can affect all sorts of nerves, uh, uh, nerves, uh, uh, including the autonomic nervous system, things that regulate your blood pressure, for example, um, the, the peripheral nerves, the nerves down in your legs uh, uh, that go into your feet and let you feel things. Uh, there's also increased risk of dementia with uh, with diabetes, uh, which can affect obviously memory, uh, uh, in, in particularly in older age. So the nervous system can be affected. Diabetes can have consequences for the kidneys that can affect kidney function and, and uh, over time result in a decrease in your kidneys ability to effectively filter your blood what they normally do. And so in, in its end stages, this is where uh, people can potentially end up on dialysis. Uh, uh, or require kidney transplants. And that's something else that see quite commonly. Um, so that's its effects on the kidneys. Diabetes can accelerate the hardening of the arteries uh, as what people most commonly know, what we talk about as atherosclerosis or cardiovascular disease. Um, and this can lead to things like heart attacks and strokes and issues with the blood vessels again in the, in the legs, um, as well as the blood vessels in the eyes. And that can also affect people's vision uh, uh, and lead to blindness over time potentially. Um, and then the last couple that I'll mention is, is, uh, somewhat less recognized, particularly in, in people who deal with diabetes uh, uh, in the primary care type setting. But diabetes is also associated with increased risk of various musculoskeletal issues. So, so weird conditions like frozen shoulder, for example, um, or other more common things like tendinopathy, osteoarthritis, which we've done podcasts on both of those topics, carpal tunnel syndrome, a few other orthopedic and musculoskeletal things occur at higher rates in diabetes. And this is thought to be, uh, to some extent, related to some of the effects of blood sugars on those actual tissues, bones and tendons and muscles and things like that. Um, and, then, and then finally, there's definitely... Uh, not to focus too much on, on all the specific organs, but on the person who has diabetes, there are substantial psychological consequences. There's this phenomenon that's been described as diabetes distress, and, and it's kind of described as the stress uh, or guilt or denial that can occur from living with diabetes and this potentially substantial burden of self-managing diabetes, because diabetes is, a, is primarily kind of an outpatient condition. It's something. It's not something that you can come into the hospital, get cured and get sent home like uh, pneumonia, for example. Rather, it's something that uh, tends to be a longer term condition. People need to self-manage it over time. And that can require a whole bunch of lifestyle changes that we'll get into to the extent that they're able to do those things. Um, it also tends to require or, or often can involve the use of medications, can involve checking your blood sugar potentially multiple times a day. It can potentially involve injection medications, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, uh, uh, and these medications all have risks and things like that. So this stuff can accumulate to generate quite a lot of, of, of stress and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, psychological 
kind of conflict for, for individuals, given that this is a potentially difficult situation to manage in certain uh, situations. And so unsurprisingly, you know, this sort of diabetes distress has been associated with worse outcomes in general. People who have a harder time self-managing this, uh, maybe that's a result of lower self-efficacy, lower education level, lower confidence, lower access to resources, all the things that we talk about in a lot of other contexts, um, uh, the, same, the same issues can result in worse health outcomes. And so definitely want to make sure that that stuff gets addressed too from the perspective of education and self-advocacy with these patients as well. Yep. So we, so we focused a little bit uh, about the complications of high blood sugar in, in you know, and Austin just gave us a, a nice little review on the both short-term and long-term consequences. Um, so it's important to actually discuss like what is normal blood sugar and then like kind of how do we actually diagnose diabetes. So first off, what is normal blood sugar in general? Uh, in the United States, if you have a blood sugar uh, a, a, uh, particularly a fasting blood sugar. So effectively you've been fasting for eight hours or more. It's 70 to 99 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, if you live outside the United States and you use SI, you know, other units, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know what the millimole conversion is, but <laughs> you know, you, in general, if you see less than a hundred on a fasting blood sugar, uh, you're, you're normal 70 to 99. Um, invariably people ask, well, what is too low? Like what is hypoglycemia? What is low blood sugar? And actually the International Hypoglycemia Study Group effectively said anything under 54 milligrams per deciliter is hypoglycemia. So effectively, if you're self-monitoring your plasma glucose, you got a continuous glucose monitor, which effectively, just as the name says, continuously monitors your blood sugar, um, or you got a lab measurement of plasma glucose. These are effectively glucose levels that do not occur under physiological conditions in non-diabetic individuals. In diabetic individuals, when this happens, it's usually because they have too much insulin on board or you know something else that's going on. So uh, less than 54 is just considered biochemical hypoglycemia, but that's you know relatively rare. So anyway, under under 100, 70 to 99 is the is the official range uh, for normal blood sugar. Now you go to your doctor and you get a fasting blood sugar, and it's not 70 to 99. It's let's say it's over 126. That's one of the diagnostic kind of you know uh, criteria for type 2 diabetes. So as long as you're fasting for eight hours or more and you got a fasting blood sugar that's greater than 126, uh, 126 milligrams per deciliter, that's you know indicative that someone's got elevated blood sugar to a level that's consistent with type 2 diabetes. Um, another term that people are probably familiar with is prediabetes, which is effectively, um, it shows that you have some impaired blood sugar regulation. And those folks would see like a fasting blood sugar between 100 and 125. Uh it's, this isn't the best test that we have. It misses a lot of people. Um, so people can have a normal fasting uh, blood sugar, but actually have type 2 diabetes. The sensitivity, for example, is only 50%. Uh, although if you do have an abnormal fasting blood sugar, the specificity is 95%. It's pretty, pretty good. So pretty indicative that something is awry there. There are two other uh, tests that uh, commonly used. One is like this uh, oral glucose tolerance test. So effectively, you drink 75 grams of sugar. And then you're, you're in the clinic getting monitored at an hour and two hours to see what your blood sugar is at an hour and two hours. And if at two hours, it's your blood sugar is greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, that's, again, consistent with type 2 diabetes. Uh, if your blood sugar at two hours is 140 to 199, that's considered impaired glucose tolerance. Uh, again, what pe people previously kind of referred to as prediabetes. Um, it, this is good for detecting early type 2 diabetes that may be missed, uh, but you do got to be in the clinic for two hours, not terribly convenient. 
and um, a couple another little lo- uh, layer of nuance. If you've been consuming a low carbohydrate diet, so like less than 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, this is not a test for you because effectively you you might have an abnormal response to the test that's not necessarily pathological. It's just because your diet isn't you know high in carbohydrates, you might not have that metabolic flexibility to deal with this test, and then you get a spurious result, and then you're like. Well, how do I interpret this? So we don't know. Um, in fact, the recommendations are that if someone was on a low carbohydrate diet, you wanted to do this oral glucose tolerance test, that they should be consuming 150 grams of carbohydrates per day for three to five days before the test, if you were going to use this test. Um, the last one that most folks have probably heard of is hemoglobin A1C. Um, so effectively, hemoglobin carries around oxygen in your bloodstream and usually lives for about 60 to 120 days, uh, give or take. And the higher your blood blood sugar is, um, the more sugar actually will stick to the red blood cells. Some amount of sugar ends up sticking to the red blood cell, no matter how, you know what your blood sugar levels are. But the higher they are, the more sugar sticks to the red blood cell. And effectively, this gives you the clinician uh, and the and the patient an idea of like what your blood sugar has been like over the last two to three months. Um, in general, if you have a hemoglobin A one C greater than six and a half percent, which just refers to the amount of sugar stuck to the red blood cell. Uh, that is consistent with type 2 diabetes. Um, this tends to be more convenient because you don't have to fast for it. You just It's just a blood draw. Uh, but again, the sensitivity is not great. So you miss a lot. Of, you, you can miss some folks. Um, in fact, it only diagnoses, when you set the cutoff at 6.5%, it's only going to diagnose about 30% of those with type 2 diabetes. Uh, it also costs more and it may not be available. Although in the United States, in our healthcare system, that's generally not an issue. But, you know, in other places, certainly. Um, in any case, most, these are the the tests that people are most, uh, familiar with. And so when Austin's talking about elevated blood sugar over time, um, you know, causing some of the complications, we're talking about blood sugars, you know, in the one fifties, two hundreds, even three hundreds on a data, you know, regular basis, um, causing some of these issues. And we use these, um, kind of different tests to identify those who are either at risk of developing some of those complications or who, uh, are kind of on that path you know, or they may already even have those, uh, those, those, those complications. Um, other symptoms that, you know, generally we don't just use this, like these, these clinical symptoms to diagnose somebody with type two diabetes. But if you have hyperglycemia and it's been elevated for a while, uh, you'll go to the bathroom more, you'll urinate more, you'll drink more water and you can have blurred vision. So those are some symptoms, but again, most people, most clinicians are not just diagnosing type two diabetes based on symptoms alone. Yeah, I think most clinicians might, would probably be surprised at, you know, you mentioned the the fasting, the, the blood sugar first thing in the morning after you fast, the A1C that can be done anytime, and then the the glucose tolerance test that requires ongoing kind of you, you, you take a drink and then they test your blood sugars. I think most clinicians, myself included, due to, you know, uh, general real world limitations, practice setting and time availability and things like that, and convenience and patient preference, they tend to use a lot of the fasting glucose in the morning and the A1C measurements, uh, probably not necessarily realizing how poor the sensitivity of those tests are. In other words, how many people they're probably missing uh, who have diabetes just by using those alone versus the less convenient but more sensitive uh, 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 glucose tolerance tests. Um, just yeah. something that I think most people probably don't recognize. Yeah. And, and the whole point of, you know, I hate to say labeling, but but of diagnosing somebody with, with type 2 diabetes is to elevate them to an additional level of care or access to care um, to address lifestyle factors, to address potential need for medications, um, 
and, and other interventions to prevent them from developing complications. So unfortunately, in our healthcare system, you know, if someone is not deemed to be at risk of developing type 2 diabetes based on some laboratory evidence, for example, or diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they may not be covered for certain interventions like seeing a registered dietitian or, you know, being referred for an ex- to an exercise specialist, depending on, you know, coverage and, and a lot of other factors. But in any case, yeah, that's how we diagnose it. That's the story on normal blood sugar and hypoglycemia. We covered that. Uh, this is actually one of the conditions that people, we, you know, that screening is recommended for. We did a whole screening podcast, you know, cause it is complicated as far as like, you know, just because you can test for something, should you? Uh, but yeah, the, right now the American Diabetes Association, the ADA recommends the testing at three year intervals, basically screening folks in three year intervals for diabetes or, uh, impaired glucose tolerance. Again, previously t- described as pre-diabetes in all adults with BMIs greater than 25, or if you're Asian American 23, uh, who also have one or more additional risk factors for diabetes. Um, and that there's a whole laundry list. Uh, we've linked the ADA guidelines in the description below. So you can take a peek at those with just a few offhand. If you've got a family history of type 2 diabetes, someone who's physically inactive, or those with uh, uh, a history of, again, an abnormal fasting glucose or A1C or glucose tolerance test. And again, you can use any of the tests, A1C, fasting plasma glucose, the AM you know, glucose uh, test, like you mentioned, or the uh, oral glucose tolerance test. Uh, so it is recommended that folks get screened per the American Diabetes Association. The, on the other hand, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, um, they basically recommend, uh, there's a little bit tighter recommendation. They're like, look, if you're 40 to 70 and you have this elevated BMI, so it's 25 or higher, uh, or again, 23 or higher if you're Asian American, then yeah, you get screened. But they actually uh, have an age sort of cut off in there. Um, to, I say all this you know, suggesting that there's uh, guidelines right now for screening. We don't really have good evidence that screening actually helps improve outcomes like mortality or, um, you know, risk of certain complications. However, it does appear to reduce overall healthcare costs for the lifetime of the patient. So again, you would think you would logically, you know, or intuitively sort of think like, oh, well, if you identify this stuff early, it's going to be better uh, from an outcome standpoint but it's complicated. You know, that may be due to like not having long enough follow-up, for example. But uh, yeah, screening is complicated, which hopefully we made crystal clear in our screening podcast. It's just, you know, just again, just because you can test for something doesn't mean you should. So to give a real world example, Austin, you're how many, what are you? 32? 30. 31. 31. You're getting up there, man. You're catching me. You're catching me. So, you know, Austin, if, when he goes into his primary care physician for some complaint, because I, I, you don't go yearly because why would you, uh, it would be inappropriate effectively to test him for, uh, to screen him for diabetes because he doesn't meet any of these criteria. Um, you know, that being said, if he was like, I want to know, many clinicians would have a hard time arguing with him. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's, they, they would do it, but you know, again, it just adds cost. And for what, for what benefit yeah. is the, it's unlikely. It's extremely unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, I generally agree with that. I mean, I think this, the screening and, and this is not something, you know, screening, I, I tend to qualify obviously our discussion on screening quite a bit in that this is when we say, you know, it's reasonable to get screened again, that doesn't mean, 
uh, everybody gets tested for this period. This is actually another example of a somewhat more targeted or selective screening process in that it is limited, according to these two organizations, either to people with the elevated BMI plus risk factor or in the other uh, 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 set of guidelines, people of a certain age plus uh, the elevated BMI. So this is not just everybody. This is for targeted screening, just like I think most screening, to the extent that you're going to do it, should probably be targeted if you want to improve your kind of case-finding uh, ability. Yeah. I had, I had a guy that I was working with who went to the CrossFit Games uh, like six years in a row, and uh, he sent me his labs, quote-unquote. I got my labs done. I just want you to look at them. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, well, why? <laughs> you know, why did you get your labs done? Anyway, so, and he had A1C, but not just like from that particular lab draw, but like five of them. Yeah. Like meaning that every time he went in for labs, he got his A1C done. Yeah. And it's like, why? <laughs> anyway. <All right. laughs> okay. So we're going to briefly talk about risk factors for type 2 diabetes. Um, Austin, you want to kick this off, talk about excess adiposity and how that interacts with risk of developing type 2 diabetes? Yeah. So excess adiposity is a, is a highfalutin way of saying that somebody has a bit too much body fat. Um, well, we're trying, we're trying to, you know, use the appropriate terminology in order to decrease the stigma. Yes, I, I understood. However, people don't also know what that word means. So, <laughs> sure. uh, so, so uh, in particular, you know, body fat that's accumulated or adiposity that is accumulated, particularly in the abdominal region, in the in the in the belly, uh, that uh, a lot of it that can get into the organs in the belly. Like, for example, you somebody may have heard or been told that they had fatty liver disease, for example, um, that's when some of this adipose tissue can get into the liver itself, and it can also get into the pancreas. And, and the, there are some consequences of the accumulation of body fat in these areas in the liver and in the pancreas, for example, on their function. And both of these organs are related to regulating blood sugar. And it's also related to inflammation in the body and a bunch of other things that can uh, increase uh, issues with insulin signaling and insulin function. And so we see a kind of a, a, a interesting relationship as body weight increases, there's a higher rate of people having issues with their blood sugar regulation, uh, the higher that goes. Um, and so you, you have some statistics that you've collected here uh, with respect to uh, BMI. If, if folks have an elevated BMI, that uh, can account for about half the increase in diabetes prevalence in men and almost all of it in, in women. And for folks, if you're going to compare folks who have a BMI, for example, of over 35 to those who have a BMI of, say, below 22, which admittedly is relatively low, um, there's about a 100 times in difference in risk of diabetes between those two categories. And that just reflects how significant of a risk factor increasing body mass and in particular body fat uh, uh, or adiposity is with respect to how insulin functions and regulates your blood sugar. Um, so so th that's uh, the first risk factor that we're going to address there. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, so people will invariably say, well, well, my, my cousin has type two diabetes, but he's not overweight. And it's like, well, overweight by what metric? Um, because for, for example, BMI on its own is not terribly sensitive at identifying individuals, all individuals who are carrying too much body fat. You, you miss about half of them, which is why we include waist circumference. So there are a lot of people who are by BMI normal, quote unquote, you know, meaning they have a BMI between 20 and 25, but their waist circumference is elevated, meaning which is indicative that they're carrying too much adipose tissue, particularly in the abdominal region, which is 
a risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. Um, in any case, yes, uh, increase body fat, having carrying too much body fat is a large, large risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Uh, family history, particularly in a first-degree relative, now this is a very complex interaction among many genes, so it's polygenic in addition to environment. But the lifetime risk of somebody with a first-degree relative who's got type 2 diabetes is about 5 to 10 times higher than another individual whose age and weight matched uh, but whose family does not have a history of type 2 diabetes. Um, and, and you extrapolate that further, in identical twins, when one twin has type 2 diabetes, it's 90% chance that the other twin will develop it at some point. So it's highly correlated uh, with genetics. And and so one of the common like med school, you know, boards questions we get on like step one is like, you know, some variants of which type of diabetes is, you know, has a higher you know, genetic risk is it type one or type two. And most folks would say type one. Cause you're like, look, man, it, you know, developed early on in age, it, it's autoimmune or something like that. And they think that's more genetically like related, but it's type two, type two has a much stronger genetic uh, relationship than type one. Yeah. The other, the other thing I would point out here is you mentioned that this list of risk factors is things that we can kind of try to target or modify. And this is obviously not necessarily not one, one of them, correct. Genetics, but that doesn't mean that you abandon all hope and say, you know, I'm screwed. I'm going to develop diabetes. It means that, hey, you can maybe recognize that you're at a higher risk and that should result in probably an even higher emphasis on some of the lifestyle aspects that we're going to get to a little bit later. Yeah, being more vigilant. It's the same thing when we did uh, some of the genetic inf- uh, inputs into developing obesity uh, or, or carrying too much body fat. There are a lot of genes associated with excess adiposity. Um, however, it looks like lifestyle has a strong sort of is a strong lever to either turn those genes on or off based on you know diet, uh, particularly number of calories, and then uh, physical activity, for example. Which brings us to the next risk factors sedentarism or physical inactivity. So effectively this induces insulin resistance. So it makes your insulin that you have on board less active, you know, so you're going to need more of it. And then at some point your pancreas goes, Whoa, I can't make any more dude. Like get, help me out, do, you know, lift some weights, do some activity. Um, so, so being physically inactive induces insulin resistance also induces anabolic resistance. So it makes it harder to build lean muscle mass, which is effectively a sponge for blood sugar. Uh, and the actual activity of, uh, uh, or the actual act of being physically active increases uptake of sugar from the blood by the active tissues, which these are all good things. So being physically inactive is a huge risk factor for developing type two diabetes. Um, and again, there's a whole other, you know, laundry list of things as far as the other modifiable ones, um, that, you know, you can do stuff about the biggest one that I see is sleep. If you have obstructive sleep apnea, that is a risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes, you know, and uh, excess adiposity or excess body fat. So, you know, we commonly see this. It's very, very, you know, common (laughs) to get stuck in my own sentence structure. Uh, And so if you're curious about that, the... uh, uh, there's a stop bang questionnaire that's free. You can take it online, see if you're at high risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and in general, if you're feeling, we did a podcast on it. We talked to a sleep medicine fellow, uh, on it. So you can check that, check that out. And in any case, check out the reference section in the description below. Again, we have more resources for you. If you're really curious and going down the rabbit hole of like risk factors for type two diabetes. However, what we'd like to do is spend the rest of this podcast talking about like, all right, type two diabetes, what do, and the idea is if you're a coach trainer or the person who works with folks who are either at risk of, which is everyone (laughs) or who have type two diabetes, like how should that affect what you're doing 
to help them. Um, so Austin, just 10,000 foot view overall, what would be the goals of treatment for somebody with type 2 diabetes? Yes, this is a very important topic and, and one that I ask my interns and students uh, about frequently. Why do we treat diabetes? Because um, a lot of times there's excessive focus on, oh, so that we can make their sugar normal. And it's like, okay, I don't necessarily care what the sugar is. I care more about the risk of complications uh, developing, particularly long-term to the extent that achieving good blood sugar levels is going to facilitate that. That's cool. But you know, I don't want gener- to get put too much of a myopic focus on the absolute blood sugar number right now. So the way I look at goals of treatment, first and foremost, ideally, um, you know, we mentioned that there's this issue with uh, uh, the pancreas and insulin signaling and things, and there's a decline in beta cell function. Beta cells are the cells that make insulin. So ideally, if we can restore normal beta cell function, then that gives us the opportunity to actually put diabetes into full remission. And that's a situation where patients can have normal blood sugars and not actually need any medications to treat their diabetes. This is actually possible but it requires pretty aggressive intervention. So early on in the course, before there's been a very significant decline in beta cell function over time. So early on, if we can get significant early weight loss, in particular, uh, uh, loss of body fat, uh, loss of the visceral fat, like like we mentioned earlier, the, the, the adipose tissue that gets into the liver and into the pancreas and things like that, if we can decrease uh, uh, total body fat, visceral body fat levels, Uh, through pretty aggressive lifestyle interventions. And sometimes that can also involve the use of certain medications to facilitate it. Uh, This has been accomplished in the research world and definitely is possible to put diabetes into full remission, uh, particularly when it's treated aggressively early on. So it's not necessarily a life sentence. However, that's a pretty uncommon scenario to actually happen in the real world, unfortunately. Uh, Maybe one day we'll we'll see that uh, uh, happening more often. So if we're not able to put it into remission, then our goal should be to get to uh, uh, adequate blood sugar control, so normal or near normal blood sugar levels with diet, exercise, potentially medications, so that we can actually prevent those complications from developing. The complications I mentioned earlier with respect to the nervous system, heart, kidneys, eyes, uh, uh, things like that. Um, And and we really want to try to prevent those complications from developing particularly if the patient is expected to live long enough to develop them. So if I have a patient with diabetes who's, you know, 95 years old and, and has a terminal cancer or something like that, then we may not be as uh, strict or as, as obsessive about the blood sugar levels um, compared to somebody who's young and healthy and has, you know, many decades of life ahead of them. Uh, we could potentially have a pretty substantial impact on their, on their future by preventing these complications from developing. And finally, if complications do develop, then we want to treat this condition in order to mitigate their progression. So it's very common for people to develop some impairment in kidney function, for example, but if we're able to prevent that impairment from progressing to the point where they need dialysis or a kidney transplant, that's great. So, you know, ideally we can put it into remission. If we can't prevent complications, if we can't prevent their progression, that's kind of the overview of how, how I think about treating diabetes. Yeah, I like it. And and I note in there that you spent little time putting an emphasis on surrogate measures. So effectively, we're just trying to optimize somebody's A1C. It's like, I mean, that that's that's part of it. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it's a way that you can monitor your interventions. But as far as how that directly affects outcomes, it's more complicated than just the number. Uh, In any case, how do we go about doing this because this is barbell medicine emphasis on the medicine let's talk about medications now first and foremost before you get into like the specifics when is somebody getting prescribed a medication i mean i know that you work for big pharma and that they're cutting you checks so (laughs) you're obviously super biased here but like when at 
you know, uh, let's say you you gave somebody their primary diagnosis of type two diabetes, their hemoglobin A based on an elevated hemoglobin A one C of six point seven percent, so just above that cutoff, and they were going to start lifestyle change. You asked them like, "Hey, would you be willing to participate in you know exercise and change your diet?" And they were like, "Man, I was just waiting for somebody to ask me. Thank you so much." At what point are you like, "No, you need medications too"? Uh, yeah, so I think I'm fairly uh, um, well. Let me put it this way: I am offering medications to them actually right away up front with that situation, and and there are a few reasons for that. I think that you know, as recall earlier, I was talking about our primary goal above all else is to try to restore normal beta cell function to put this can put this uh, condition into remission, uh, getting them to the point where they have normal blood sugar uh, control off of all medications, and they can just like live their lives. Um, there is evidence for uh, basically initiating some of these medications earlier on can actually help facilitate that, uh, that process uh, occurring. It can facilitate it by way of improving pancreatic function, also by way of helping with weight loss. Um, and then a lot of, a lot of patients, obviously, uh, like I said, going into full remission is, is not a very common outcome that we'll see, unfortunately. Uh, and so these medications, uh, we have mounting evidence for some of them. There are some very recent kind of blockbuster classes that have shown very compelling evidence of benefit for reducing cardiovascular risk, for reducing the risk of developing kidney disease or progression of kidney disease, as well as reducing the risk of death uh, in these patients. And, and in some in some situations uh, uh, that I'll get to, the benefits extend to whether patients have diabetes or not, which has been pretty uh, interesting uh, new developments that have come out. And so if somebody is coming in in that range, say they are newly diagnosed with diabetes just by that criteria, uh, by, by being just barely above that criterion. Um, if they want, you know, obviously emphasis is going to be on the lifestyle factors. If they are open to using one of these medications as an adjunct as part of that process, hey, it can help you lose more weight. It can help to put this thing into remission. Um, and then you'd be able to come off of this medication in the future if they're willing to do that. I'm all on board with that. Um, if they would prefer to try the lifestyle stuff alone and not use the medications early on, then that's something that we can discuss and negotiate risk, uh, you know, over in terms of discussing the risks and benefits and things like that. Um, but like I said, I'm offering it to them quite early. And even there's also evidence, uh, particularly for one of these medicines, uh, uh, metformin for patients with the quote unquote prediabetes that you mentioned earlier, if they're below that threshold, that uh, uh, it can be used to reduce the risk of progression to full diabetes in that situation. So there's definitely a lot of a lot of ways that these medicines can be used. And they, you know, I oftentimes, particularly early on, um, you know, it is possible to use them fairly aggressively early on with the goal of getting patients to their weight loss goals to the point where they may be able to come off of all of them, which is not unheard of. Yeah. I mean, the idea, and I share this sentiment, uh, I'd rather throw a lot at somebody if they're willing to make these changes to try to get the thing in remission and then happily pull them off medications as we can, uh, you know, effectively. So where they'd be on none, no, none, no medications later on if possible, but yeah. I'd rather do that than like gradually titrate yeah. up the intensity of things that I'm doing and never getting it into remission yep. never even having a chance. hundred percent agree. Yeah. yeah. The, okay. the, the place I generally direct my students and interns who need to learn this stuff to is the ACE, uh, uh, comprehensive type two diabetes management algorithm from 2019. And I'm sure we can provide a link to that. There are some very nice, neat, organized kind of graphics and flow charts and algorithms and things like that for the management of every aspect of diabetes in uh, this document. So it's very nice and, and convenient for, for them as a reference. 
Um, I'll only, I'm not going to touch on every aspect of this because I think there are probably three main medication classes that I think are worth mentioning because of how great they are in the, in the management of this condition. And then the rest, I'm not really going to touch very much on. Um, so the first one and one of the oldest and one of the ones that most people, a lot of people who are around medicine or or who have, uh, have diabetes have heard of is metformin. And this is an oral medication. It's, it can, it's, uh, uh, one of the first ones that is initiated in, in many patients. Um, it works through a slew of different mechanisms. Some are better understood than others. Um, it can reduce uh, how much blood sugar your liver actually produces and puts out into your bloodstream, which can be a problem in diabetes as your liver kind of inappropriately dumping more blood sugar into your bloodstream. It can improve the insulin sensitivity of your tissues. Um, and it has some other effects through fancy pathways like AMP kinase and, and other things that, again, we can just uh, show off our knowledge on, but aren't really super important. <laughs> it is fairly effective at improving insulin sensitivity, reducing average blood sugars, reducing A1C in general. It tends to be pretty neutral with respect to body weight. Some people will lose a little bit of weight. Most people will not, their weight won't change a ton on metformin. Um, But uh, it's probably one of the more commonly prescribed ones kind of first line in this situation. Um, And that's probably most of what I have to say about metformin. Do you have anything that you would want to add on it? I don't want to get into all the side effects and things like that. That's a, you know, a discussion for people to have with their doctors if their doctor wants to, you know, nocebo them, et cetera. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, nothing except for if somebody's on metformin and you're wondering like, how should this affect my training and or like nutrition guidelines? It shouldn't. Nope. It does not. Yep. Yeah. And in fact, with respect to training, um, exercise in and of itself does cause changes in blood sugar, like while you're doing it. So it is not uncommon, for example, for people's blood sugar, particularly if they have type 2 diabetes, for it to go up if the exercise is very intense, the liver actually releasing sugar into the blood. So if somebody's exposed to like a new, like novel, high intensity sort of activity, so lifting really, really heavy weights, doing sprints, doing a, a CrossFit, a Metcon, for example, it's not unusual for the blood sugar to go up for a couple hours, but then it goes back down to normal. They eventually get used to it. That stops happening. Um, and so again, it's not something you need to worry about because one, you're not actively managing their blood sugar anyway, because you know, you're the coach. Uh, and then two, the short term sort of changes here are relatively unremarkable from like a, this is really going to change what you're doing standpoint. So don't need to worry about it, particularly if you're a coach or trainer or otherwise not actively managing somebody's medications, um, in, in, in their type two diabetes. Uh, Okay, moving on. Yep. So this next class is probably the one that has people the most excited these days. It's one of the newer ones. It's called the sodium glucose uh, uh, transporter 2 inhibitor. So SGLT2 inhibitors, they work in the kidneys basically by preventing your kidneys from reabsorbing blood sugar into your bloodstream. So you end up peeing out this blood sugar. That's kind of the short and simple way that you, uh, that these medications work. Uh, some of the common ones that people will be on is uh, they end in flozin. F-L-O-Z-I-N. So there's canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, empagliflozin, tons of different ones like that with other fancy brand names. Um, and the reason people are particularly excited about these is a few is a few reasons. One is that obviously because of that, the way they work there, they have a bit of a diuretic effect, which means they have a, a bit of a blood pressure lowering effect, which is good for these patients. Um, it has a weight loss effect since you're effectively peeing out calories. Uh, uh, so that's good for these folks as well. There are also a, several new trials that have come out within the past uh, probably year to two years, um, uh, 
basically looking at these medicines and their effect on kidney related outcomes on heart failure related issues, as well as other cardiovascular uh, kind of outcomes. And basically they show substantial risk reduction. Bas- basically it shows that they improve outcomes for people. Uh, they, they reduce the risk of people having progressive kidney disease, uh, uh, reduces the risk of issues around heart failure, including death from heart failure. And it has these benefits in people with diabetes and even if they don't have diabetes. So there's been some discussion of like, these were originally medicines that were thought of as diabetes medicines, but are they actually more cardiovascular medicines with a diabetes benefit on the side? And it's like, I don't really believe in effects and side effects. I just see medicines as having effects and they are what they are. So, um, not too often that we get a new, uh, uh, you know, option that we can use uh, to treat alongside our lifestyle interventions for these patients that can actually reduce the risk of death and developing various uh, uh, poor, uh, uh, you know, long-term complications from this condition. So these have people pretty excited uh, uh, right now because it's fairly impressive data that's coming out in multiple randomized control trials, not just like one one-off uh, a trial. As far as uh, implications for training and things like that, again, not really a whole lot. I suppose you could say that, again, these have maybe a bit of a diuretic effect and to the extent that um, that may influence your programming. Although, again, I probably, for somebody who I'm trying to get to resistance train and do some basic aerobic exercise, I'm not going to change what I uh, program for them based on the fact that they are on or not on one of these medications. The next, uh, the the third big one, and this is the how we'll round out the medication discussion here, is called the uh, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist. So GLP-1 receptor agonists, these are a, there's a whole family of these medicines, a lot of them, but not all of them, they end in glutide. So liraglutide, dulaglutide, et cetera, semaglutide. Um, and there are, most of them are injected, a few are oral, uh, or there's one new oral one that, that we're uh, starting to use. Uh, and these are also uh, have a lot of benefits. These act uh, in a bunch of different places in the brain, on the stomach, things like that. Um, they can increase satiety. So basically make people feel more full. It can uh, result, which can help people obviously lose a bit of weight because they end up eating a bit less food and weight loss is beneficial in diabetes. These also reduce blood sugar and they also have been shown to have benefit in reducing cardiovascular risk. So that's also a big benefit for these patients since diabetes markedly increases cardiovascular risk. So for people with very difficult to control diabetes or people who have very high blood sugars when they come in, um, you know, they may obviously end up needing some insulin, which is one other, you know, uh, medication option that we won't get into the details of. Um, but if we can get patients, sometimes we can get patients on all three of these metformin and an SGLT2 and a GLP-1 receptor agonist. That's again, kind of maximal upfront therapy that can get the best kind of blood sugar control can get the most weight loss. Whereas some of the older diabetes medicines that I really try not to prescribe anymore, can increase the risk of weight gain and things like that, that, that I'm not a fan of in these patients. It's kind of like setting them back just to make their blood sugar look pretty. Um, uh, so one or more potentially, you know, in combination, depending on how severe the blood sugar dysregulation is, can be pretty beneficial because they can all either be weight neutral or induce weight loss, which is a big benefit and reduce the risk of these bad complications that we're trying to avoid. None of them significantly impact, again, exercise programming, how I might go about training somebody um, or their nutrition uh, kind of approaches outside of what we discussed with nutrition above. Um, they just kind of are what they are. They're useful tools. They're not uh, cure-alls. They don't on their own put this condition into remission. You need to do a lot of uh, legwork um, uh, pun intended, I suppose there, uh, to, to make that, to make that happen. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I think those are the big three that people should be most aware of. Definitely. If you're in medical school as, uh, you know, in residency, uh, going into a primary care type field you should get super comfortable with all of these, uh, uh, all of these options. Cause you'll definitely be using them in the future alongside your lifestyle uh, and behavior change counseling with your patients. 
Uh, and so I would, again, for the summary, direct you to that ACE uh, diabetes algorithm from 2019 and the rest of the medications I probably wouldn't bother discussing here, including insulin for, for the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. The idea isn't to, you know, because again, we, we know who our major- the majority of our listeners are demographic wise and like professional wise, you know, and this isn't like to say that, hey, yeah, if you're coaching somebody and they've got to type two diabetes and, you know, you noticed on the, the medications that they're taking, the reported list that they're not taking a, a glutide or a, a flows in that you should, you know, recommend that they start. That's not the idea. The idea is to one, not be scared of these medications because they do have indications here can be very effective. And then also to the extent that you're like the health subject matter expert in your peer group to normalize medications for those who would benefit from these medications. The goal again of, you know, having a uh, integrated diabetic care package here is to ultimately put this thing in remission, uh, control blood sugar and reduce the progression of complications or prevent them entirely. And so if we can improve that, via using medications, via normalizing this rather than stigmatizing it, then that's a net win. And so that's what we're trying to do here by talking about some of these medications. Same thing with the obesity medications that we uh, have talked about in the past. So Austin, let's get into these take-home points. First off, as discussed before, Type 2 diabetes is super common, and it's basically characterized by insulin resistance and a progressive loss in beta cell function, which is problematic because it can lead to a number of severe long-term complications, as we've discussed before. Ideally, early, aggressive treatment, lifestyle, plus or minus medications as necessary to achieve significant weight and body fat loss can put diabetes into remission. If this cannot be achieved, a variety of lifestyle and medical interventions can generate substantial improvements and effectively prevent the development and or progression of complications. So hopefully you have taken away a lot of useful information, um, particularly with how to uh, provide folks different leverages to change their diet, to change their uh, physical activity patterns, and to potentially consider medications if they're not already on them. Austin, anything else you want to add to this podcast? Uh, The only brief thing that I I think we mentioned just in passing is, uh, you know, for some patients who may qualify for bariatric surgery, obviously, and that that's something that definitely should be on the list of things to consider and to destigmatize. It's something that when patients undergo it, they can literally cure diabetes in like a matter of days after surgery. <laughs> so definitely something that for the right patient uh, uh, at the right time, it's something that is worth considering. Everything else, agree with uh, agree with the above. Agree with the above. Yeah. So <laughs> basically, if, somebody, if somebody's if somebody got uh, type 2 diabetes, their BMI is greater than 30, they're unable to attain that 5 to 15% weight loss. Um, and their clinical sur- like surrogate markers, like the A1C, for example, are still out of, you know, un- uh, abnormal, even with medications and lifestyle and all that other sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, surgery. We should, again, normalize it, destigmatize it. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 112, part one of the Type 2 Diabetes Podcast Series. Part two is going to drop next Monday. Uh, And you can check that out right here, wherever you get your podcast from. And then every Monday, we're dropping a new podcast, The Latest Nuance and Health and Fitness. Please tune in to those. Now, wherever you're getting this from, if you're on a smartphone, uh, please hit like, leave us a rating, a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, kind of helps us, you know, get the motivation to continue to put out these podcasts. We really appreciate your listenership and all of your support. We'll see you guys next week.